Chileans wanted change and they wanted significant change. How much change, what it is people want change, do they want to throw out the model entirely? Those are all open questions, but people clearly felt like they needed to reach beyond their uh, current political class and find something new. Welcome to the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs, a completely student-run podcast at Johns Hopkins University. My name is Franz Ocilia. Today on the podcast, we talk about Chile and the results and implications of its December 19 presidential election. With the election of its first millennial leader and the drafting of a new constitution, Chile is experiencing one of the most politically consequential moments of its modern history. What does it all mean? And what can we expect to happen this year and in the future? To answer these questions and more, we're joined today by Brian Winter, the editor-in-chief of the publication America's Quarterly. We hope you enjoy this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. Thank you for joining us today on the podcast, Brian. Thanks for having me. So the 2021 Chilean presidential elections last December were characterized as one of the most polarizing elections in Chile's modern history, meaning after the, the new government was set up after Pinochet. So before delving into the results of said election, I would like to spend some time talking about the characters and the politicians involved. So why don't we first get started with Gabriel Boric? What is his background and what was his campaign platform? Well, Gabriel Boric comes from the protest movement that started to break out in Chile about a decade ago. He was a university student at the time. Of course, he's still very young. He's, he's just 35. But he really represented this idea that has been around for at least 10 years, maybe longer, that the Chilean model was broken or at least stuck that it had generated economic growth, but it had not done enough to reduce inequality or provide um, good services for, uh, for the middle class and for the poor uh, in areas like healthcare and, and schools. And, you know, look, this is a controversial idea in many respects because Chile from really 1990, when the dictatorship ended and democracy returned, up until the mid-2010s, was by many different measurements, one of Latin America's most successful countries. I mean, not only did it successfully consolidate its democracy, not only did the economy grow at very brisk rates, I mean, 6 7% a year for many years, but it also reduced poverty um, more successfully than really any other country in the region except maybe Peru. I mean, Chilean poverty fell from about 40% in 1990 to single digits today, about 8%, or at least prior to the pandemic. So this idea that Chile was just you know a quote-unquote neoliberal success story is just not true. Um, it also has... Uh, Latin America's best indicators on life expectancy and infant mortality and elsewhere. But look, um, you know, those those facts and figures can only take you so far. And the fact is many Chileans, um, especially members of the middle of the middle class, believed that they were not getting their fair share 
uh, and they were being stuck with student debt and um, you know bad healthcare services and so on. And so Gabriel Boric emerges from the student protest movement that you know came out first in 2011, and then he and several of his colleagues at that time, uh, other students, took the very unusual step of deciding to try to change the system from the inside and decided to run for Congress. Uh, and after serving a term there, uh, he decided to run for president. And even though, you know, he was older and, and running for a much, I mean, the ultimate, the, the highest office in the land, he, his connections with the people as well as the fundamental argument of that student protest movement back in 2011, that still remains the essence of his appeal. And so on this side, we have a Boric, uh, you know, with experience in the student movements of the of the early 2010s and um, with this dream of making sure that Ch Chile's society is made more equitable. Who is on the other side of the spectrum? Who was... Antonio Cast, Jose Antonio Cast, and what was he promising to the Chilean people? Well, Cast represents the other side, right? I mean, he he represents this viewpoint that you know Chile was not in need of significant change, um, and as a matter of fact, he represents a strain of right wing thought, some say far right thought in Chile that was not only defending the Chilean economic model as it has existed since 1990, but actually in many respects, nostalgic for the Pinochet years, uh, the dictatorship that, that ran Chile from 73 to, to 1990. And, you know, he made comments over the years where on the one hand, he, he said that he thought you know, the human rights abuses during those years were bad, but he said, if, if Peter Shea were alive today, he would have voted for me. Um, he, he didn't say that during this election cycle, but in a previous one. And you know, it kind of represents this somewhat small segment of Chilean society that never quite turned the page after those, um, you know, after the dictatorship years and, and still flirted with some aspects of, of its legacy. And I think that Cast's rise in the polls and the fact that he made the runoff suggests that there is an important portion of Chilean society that is scared of radical change, whether it comes from Boric or this constitutional assembly that was elected in the wake of the 2019 protests, which, which made Chileans decide to um, toss aside the 1980 constitution, which of course dates from the Pinochet years, and try to write a new charter. There has been a feeling among many Chileans over the last year or so that that, that process is, is maybe too far to the left. And I think Cast was able to channel some of that, but in the end, he was so associated with the past and, you know, kind of this, this Pinochet nostalgia that uh, it's a very small slice of the population in Chile that that feels that way, and I, I think ultimately he was he was too associated with that legacy to to get elected. And Brian, one one of the most interesting things to me about this election is that we had individuals that were not part of the political establishment in Chile ultimately reaching 
the second round. In the case of Porridge from the left and the, the case of Cast from the right. And this is inter- interesting to me because I had noticed that Chile had this deep-rooted political culture of center-right and center-left politicians getting elected to the presidency and and, do, and making policy from Michel Bachelet to Piñera recently. So I wanted to ask you, why was 2021 different? Why why did these traditional center-left, center-right parties fail to even get someone in the second round? Well, that's a great question. And I think there are a couple different answers. The most fundamental one is that Chileans wanted change and they wanted significant change. And everything that they've told us since these protests erupted in 2019, uh, where you had on one day, at one point, you had 1.7 million people, I think is the number, uh, in the streets of Santiago in just one day. That's a lot anywhere. But when you consider that all of Chile is 18 million people, <laughs> I mean, that was a big protest. That's the equivalent of, you know, some 33 million people here in the United States all being in one place. Um, that's a lot. And so, you know, ever since then, the momentum time and again has been behind the idea of change. Now, how much change, what it is people want change, do they want to throw out the model entirely? Those are all open questions. But people clearly felt like they needed to reach beyond their uh, current political class and find something new. And look, uh, in the case of Boric, very compelling figure. And I, I know him personally. Um, I first met him uh, when I was researching an article. I interviewed him uh, in Chile, actually in the cafeteria of Chile's Congress back in 2017. And I can tell you that he's he's a very uh, compelling figure has a lot of traits that are unusual amongst a politician, particularly a young politician. Uh, he's a great listener. Uh, he's very modest. I mean, he clearly has beliefs, very strong beliefs, but he has um, just a very mature person's ability to uh, engage and 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 build consensus. And so, you know, sometimes these figures, these unique figures come along and they kind of catch fire. And there was there was clearly some of that with Boric as well. And then you know, just one other thought here. I, I, in the weeks now since Boric won the election, uh, I've had a lot of people talk to me about, you know, why they think he got elected, in part because I, I wrote a piece for America's Quarterly kind of talking about how I, I you know, how, how I met him and know him. And, and one person said to me, they said, you know, Chile was a country that was just ripe for a generational shift. A lot of people believe, or I've heard people say, that Chile is remains one of the most kind of socially conservative, buttoned-up, formal political cultures. Uh, and Boric represented a breath of fresh air. And so I, I think there's a generational element to that as well, where you know, some people voted for him because they wanted a shift to the left. But I think a lot of people voted for him because he is a tattooed, bearded, you know, 35-year-old who, who dresses a bit shabbily, and people found that refreshing. 
and not only refreshing, but an antidote to the ascot wearing, necktie wearing, prevailing culture of Chilean politics on both the center left and the center right. And I'm, I'm glad that you brought that up because to me, this is one of the most exciting parts about the development uh, in Chile because we have a millennial being elected to power in Latin America, one of the first ones. I think the other one is Bukele, correct? In... Yeah, I mean, Naib Bukele, I think, is so different from him uh, oh, from yeah, Boric, yeah. in I, so many ways. But they they do they are both bearded millennials. <laughs> right, right. And, and to me, this is exciting in a region that has traditionally had a lot of older leadership. And, and so I wanted to nail this down a little bit more. So aside from... So Boric won on December 19th by 11 points. Massive margin of victory. So how surprising was that margin to you? And what does this victory symbolize for for Chile and also for the region? I know that you mentioned a little bit more about the generational shift, and I would love to hear a little bit more about that as well. Yeah, the margin was bigger than almost anyone expected. Uh, people thought this was really going to be a nail-biter of an election, and it wasn't. I mean, it was over very quickly and cast, to his credit, very quickly conceded, called Boric, visited Boric. Um, and you know, that was proof that Chile, whatever other challenges it may have, r remains one of the healthiest democracies in the Americas, and um, perhaps even more so at this point than the United States. Uh, and that's a credit to just you know, 30 plus years now of, of folks trying to build a a democracy because of course it was it was not always thus. As far as what the victory symbolizes and what it means for Boric in terms of a mandate, there is a lot of debate around this question. It goes back to some of these fundamental questions that I raised at the beginning. Was this truly a mandate for you know a massive expansion of the Chilean state? Uh Or did Boric benefit from votes that came from, you know, more from the center? Because he did not, you know, Boric actually placed second in the first round of voting, um, which was also a surprise to him. Um, and he spent the runoff campaign trying to build bridges after essentially having concluded that the left, that his base was not going to be enough for him to win the runoff. So he reached out to parties that, you know, members of the old, the Concertación, the center-left uh, coalition that governed Chile uh, throughout the 90s, um, and also moderated his rhetoric somewhat. In ways, you know, some of which were really surprising, by the way. I mean, he, he when he reached out to the Christian Democrats, a very centrist party, He apologized for the "quote unquote" generational arrogance that his party had uh, shown in in you know previous uh, conversations with them and and kind of public statements. So this was a pretty material shift toward the middle. And so now the debate, and I suspect press reports indicate this debate is happening within Boric's own team and and possibly within Gabriel Boric's mind. This fundamental question of You know, why did I really win? Uh, right. You know, am I obliged now to govern more from the center than I otherwise might have? Or do I go with my base, 
which includes some elements that are quite hard left, like the Chilean Communist Party, for example. So I, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see. I mean, I, we're not, that's a debate and a tension that may never be fully resolved. You may see him jump around quite a bit during his presidency. That's interesting to me um, because I was I was really surprised as I was reading your piece and I was watching his actions. I was surprised by the by his humbleness and by his modesty that he had after after the election. He he seems like someone who's willing to listen to many different viewpoints and and that's exciting to see in Latin America. But the elephant in the room, of course, is that in Latin America, what always happens is that whenever someone left of center in Latin America is elected, there's always comparisons to Hugo Chavez and accusations of socialism. And and Boric has not been an exception to this. There was a lot of fear-mongering throughout the campaign. And so is this, how, how fair is this characterization? And, and if it's not fair, what what's a better way of looking at Boric? Is there like another historical figure in Latin America that we could look at as an example? The comparisons between... Boric and Hugo Chavez are completely unfair. Uh, they're absurd. And I said so in that article. I've said so in you know, television interviews and private conversations and so on. Uh, Gabriel Boric is a Democrat. Uh, he is someone who believes in institutions. And as proof, uh, you know, I would cite his comments in recent years uh, condemning the Venezuelan dictatorship, uh, describing the recent Nicaraguan sham elections as a farce. Uh, he was also supportive of the recent dissident movement uh, against uh, the Diaz-Canel dictatorship in Cuba. Um, and, you know, if you go back further, there are some comments from 2013. There was a tweet that circulates a lot that shows him being supportive of Maduro, but But I would say, look, that was eight years ago. It's a little late for me personally. I, mean, I think that in 2013, it was clear what Maduro was, but, but not everybody felt that way. I, I, think that, I think that in recent years, particularly from 2016, 2017 onward, it became clear to everybody who was paying attention what Venezuela really was. And um, in any case, I, I think Boric's credentials on that front in terms of both what he said and kind of his overall temperament, I don't think, I, I, I believe that Chile's strong democracy is in, is in safe hands. As far as what, you know, what leader he, he reminds me of in, in Latin America in particular, I really can't think of any. And I, I say this as someone who studies Latin American history, uh, He represents something totally new because he has the values and concerns of a millennial. Um, he cares about uh, and talks about climate change, gender equality, uh, the representation of historically marginalized groups such as indigenous people in the Chilean context and so on. I said in the article that I wrote for America's Quarterly that I believed that he personally cares about those issues more than the old Latin American uh, left's ideas about, you know, income redistribution and so on. That was a line that got a lot of attention. I do believe it's true, but 
I would just point out that it's not an either or. <laughs> I, I do think he's going to do both. Uh, you know, I mean, it, it's clear that he wants to try to increase taxes. Um, he's going to increase the size of the Chilean state. The question, of course, is by how much. Um, but, you know, th- th- these these concerns that I just mentioned, uh, the Latin American left is not, if you look at some of these other leaders, uh, people like Pedro Castillo in Peru, or even Lula in Brazil, or, or, or Lopez Obrador in, in Mexico, I know that some people kind of dispute whether he's he can be called a leftist or not, but... Uh, let's just assume for the sake of argument, we can. These are all leaders who do not place these issues of green energy, for example, front and center as part of their agenda. Um, They're even quite uh, traditional, to use a polite word, on social issues. Um, Some of these leaders, it's questionable whether you could describe them as feminists or not. And Gabriel Boric is. And so I, I do think he represents something totally new in a Latin American context uh, that's that's exciting and, and fresh. And we'll see if more people follow in his footsteps. That is indeed exciting and fresh, as you, as you said, especially in the region. Um, now that we've talked and introduced Gabriel Boric and, and, his, and his viewpoints as well, I want to turn our attention to the work at hand, the work that's going to face him moving forward. Because as as I understand, a lot of his campaign promises are reliant on the work, on the finished work of Chile's Constitutional Convention, and then also his relationship with the National Congress. To that latter point, what does Chile's Congress look like after the 2021 elections? And does Boric have a working majority to push his agenda through? He does not have a working majority. Uh, he faces a Senate in particular where the center right and right will be able to resist uh, his efforts. And, you know, as we record this, we really haven't gotten many hints yet as to who will make up Boric's cabinet or what exactly some of the positions will be on key issues, such as what to do about. Chile's lithium reserves, for example, um, or even basic questions like how much are they going to try to expand the size of the Chilean state? Uh, we know, you know, we can guess that on another big issue, what to do with Chile's pension system, Boric has indicated that he'll do away with the private pension system that has, um, you know, some believe has been successful in terms of generating economic growth, but has not provided for the most part the expected payout to Chilean retirees that that society thinks is is necessary. So I, I think that right now, probably as we speak, as we record this, Gabriel Boric is in a, you know, is in a room with with 20 people trying to figure all this out. How do we take this these very ambitious ideas that we campaigned on? and square them away against the electoral mandate that we received, which included a lot of votes from the center, as well as what is realistic in terms of getting things through Chile's Congress. And how do we build this in a way also, we haven't talked about this yet, how do we do this in a way that doesn't completely burn bridges with the Chilean business establishment, uh, which does not like him 
for the most part. Uh, you know, how do you work with them? Because to just sort of blithely say, ah, well, they lost. And so they're going to have to, you know, deal with it, which is what part of Borich's base is telling him. Um, if you take that route, then you will continue to see capital flight and people sending their money out of Chile uh, stagnant or falling investments and so on. And by the way, that's already been happening over the last couple of months. I mean, I, you know, the Chilean peso lost 18% the last time I checked over the last uh, year. Uh, and that speak, that was one of the worst among, you know, emerging markets globally because Chileans with money were sending their money out of the country. Uh, that was one of the big reasons anyway. And so if he's not careful, um, the whole thing that, you know, the economy could blow up on him. And so I, I these are, these are hard challenges. And, and by the way, I mean, I, the, the, the business community down there, uh, is part of this. Many people are part of this group that is willing to label Boric as, you know, the next coming of Hugo Chavez at, you know, at the drop of a hat, the second he does anything that's even remotely leftist. Um, so I, I'm not certain that anybody is capable of straddling these different divides that that I've just described. Yeah, it'll cer- certainly be interesting to see how he deals with um, with with the business community because, as you mentioned, it's a huge part of of Chile's economy and and political influence as well. Um, another thing that is very important in Chile politically this year is the results of the constitutional convention or like the the draft of the new constitution I mean what would I know that you already mentioned that the the reasons for why people voted overwhelmingly to draft the new constitution they wanted change they wanted a different um, role of for the state but what would this new constitution mean politically and economically for Chile what would what are they seeking to allow the government to do and and what institutions are they are they seeking to change? Well, we don't know yet. And, and this this constitutional convention, I mean, they are rewriting the charter from scratch, and so Chile could come out of this theoretically with a with a parliamentary or semi parliamentary system. Uh, there could be you know all kinds of guaranteed uh, rights on uh, everything from healthcare to education and so on. Uh, that future governments would have to abide by. Um, and, you know, look, there are a lot of people, maybe this sounds obvious to folks, but there are a lot of people who think that this constitutional uh, process is is far more important over time than Boric winning the election, which, you know, makes sense because it's a, it's a constitution. But, uh, you know, it, it still has to be approved uh, via plebiscite. And so this is another <laughs> tension right now that that the Chilean political class, including Boric, will have to navigate, which is that if society gets the sense that things are drifting too far to the left in terms of the document and the politics overall, they could lash out essentially by not approving the Constitution. So, you know, th- th- there's so much. It's very rare for a country to be dealing with all of these different processes, all these different tensions at the same time. Yes, it's it's truly unique. And 
And how is this constitution supposed to be ratified? Is it as hard as it is to ratify amendments to the U.S. Constitution, or is it a simple majority vote through the plebiscite? Um, how how is it supposed to be ratified at the end of the day? No, it's 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 via plebiscite. Um, but to think that it's going to be easy, uh, you know, it, it, it won't. Um, and I, there there's so many. There's so many big decisions, and and look, I think ultimately the the concern that a lot of people of the kind of center left and center right variety have is in this process, do you end up ruining the thing that made Chile's economy so dynamic over the last thirty years? Because on the one hand, yes, it remains one of the world's most unequal societies and has failed to grow social spending and deliver services for its people. And I, I think it's very hard to find people who don't acknowledge that. Um, the question is, can you build some of that out uh, and, and tax more without damaging that dynamism that really has made Chile special over the last 30 years. And when I say special, um, I mean, in terms of poverty reduction and making life better for everybody. And I, you know, sometimes people get very mad at me when I say that and call me a neoliberal or they say, I'm just some American who doesn't understand Chile. But, but if you look at the statistics, uh, and if you talk to people about their lives and how things have changed over the last 30 years, I, I, I'm sorry, but I do, and especially if you compare what happened in Chile over that time to you know places like um, like Mexico or Argentina or, or even Brazil, um, you know the Chilean success story over that time was real, but it wasn't enough. And and I you know I would also acknowledge that that Chile was never going to continue to progress with a Latin American style social pyramid and a Pinochet era constitution. Um, so yes, I, I, I also believe that that change is necessary. The question is, can you strike that balance? Can you produce change in a way that satisfies these these imperatives coming from society without damaging that 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 thing that made it special? And that's that's what we're all waiting to see now. That's right. That balance is what I'm most excited to see happen and see if the constitutional convention can come up with something that balances those two um, new interests as well. And I also want to focus a little bit more on the on the foreign policy side of things uh, with re- respects to Chile. I know that Chile and the United States have had a very long and prosperous economic and political relationship over the years. I, do you expect the relationship to change significantly under Boric? I know that that President Biden sent a very warm message to the to to Boric um, after he won the election. Uh, so, are we in for some drastic changes to the U.S.-Chile relations, or is it mostly going to be the same as it was before? Well, I think it'll be a positive relationship. My understanding is that Boric and Biden had a good call. Uh, the call was in English, by the way, um, and. You know, they they from what I heard uh, kind of hit it off, but of course, 
bilateral relationships are about more than just personal chemistry. There's real issues there. Uh, one of them, I would say one of the big animating issues for the United States right now in Latin America is China. Uh, and Chile is an interesting question or an interesting country on the China issue, because even under conservative governments like Sebastián Piñera's, uh, those ties with Beijing have been built out in recent years uh, in, in mining, uh, in the lithium space, for sure. Uh, and Boris may be tempted to go down even further uh, on that road. I don't suspect that he'll, you know, firmly, uh, I don't, in fact, I mean, all countries in Latin America, for the most part, are trying to avoid really strongly siding with one country or another. Um, but there's reason to think that that Boric will, will continue, if not deepen that path that 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 Pinera went down. Um, apart from that, though, I, I, I do think that there's room for collaboration on uh, on issues, including Venezuela, uh, where, of course, Chile has absorbed quite a lot of immigrants uh, from several countries, including Haiti also, um, but also Venezuela in recent years. Um, I, I, I mean, I, I don't I don't expect a whole lot of change, though. And with regards to Chile's relationship with other Latin American countries, um, as we've talked today, there's a lot of outstanding issues that require leadership. We have Nicaragua's sham elections, Nicolas Maduro's authoritarianism, the protests in Cuba, all of which he has come out against strongly, as you mentioned. Yeah. Uh, but there's all the new issues coming up. There's issues of integration and strategic autonomy. There's um, and and other issues facing Latin America. How do you expect Boric to approach these new issues, uh, these continental issues, and and does he, to our knowledge, have a good foreign policy team around him? Well, we don't know much yet about the foreign policy team. We can really guide ourselves on these statements that he's made regarding you know the authoritarian states, the dictatorships in Latin America. And, and look, I, I think, though, that, I mean, first of all, I would just say that it's interesting to me to watch, you know, some of these far left uh, Caracas aligned media organizations like Telesur already taking aim at Boric and you know trying to portray him as a as an imperialist stooge uh, because I mean because he's critical of of Maduro essentially there is no other reason and it's proof that uh, you know for these these people this kind of hard this corporativist hard left it's never been about social justice or even inequality and poverty for these people. It's really just about whether, you know, leaders are willing to be part of their kind of, you know, hard left authoritarian group. Um, but elsewhere in the region, I think Boric comes along at, a, at an opportune time, uh, especially with polls showing that Lula is likely to win in Brazil and, and return as president in 2023. Uh, Gustavo Petro is currently leading polls in Colombia. He's also a man of the left. I, I don't, I have some questions about whether Petro will actually win or not. Um, but if he does, then you would have the largest six economies in Latin America would all be run by leaders who describe themselves as left of center. 
And, you know, for better, for worse, what I mean by that is I, I wish that there was always good opportunities for regional cooperation and that these things weren't decided by kind of these, these questions of, you know, kind of 20th century ideological labels, but, but in practice they are, you know, birds of a feather flock together and they feel more comfortable when everybody at the table thinks more or less the same way. And there may be some opportunities for regional integration on issues like trade, uh, maybe in terms of this question of also uh, facing the, the increasingly bipolar world with with Washington and Beijing kind of pulling them in different directions. And, and that kind of regional coordination is is needed. Uh, if you look at trade within Latin America, it's, it's one of the regions of the world where intra-regional trade, meaning trade within the region, is is very small, very short of its potential. And when things align like this, as they, they did previously during the so-called pink tide of the 2000s, um, you do see at least some efforts at, at greater inter-regional cooperation and trade, and maybe some opportunities will come out of this. To finish off, Brian, what is the big picture read on the 2021 Chilean elections and Boric's success? Will it... Is it the beginning of a generational revolution across the country? Is the future success of future young politicians in, in the continent dependent on his success? Will it be a turning point for 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 the region's politics? You don't have to answer all the questions. It's just just <laughs> a a a just what's the big picture here for our listeners? Well, I would hope that he that Boric's election signals the entry of many more younger people into politics across the Americas, including here in the United States. As a matter of fact, the reason I first met Boric back in 2017 was because I was doing a story asking specifically this question, where are the young politicians? Where are the young presidents? This was at a time, you know, back in 2017 when the presidents of Latin America were even older on average than they are now. You had people like Pedro Pablo Kaczynski in Peru, who was later, in, uh, I guess he resigned. Um, you know, he was 80, I think he was 80 at the time. Michel Temer was in his 70s. Uh, and this generational turnover really is just, is would be, I think, such a positive thing um, everywhere. Uh, I would point out that I live in the United States now, and we just had an election between a, I think a seventy-eight-year-old and a seventy-six-year-old. And I, look, I'm not a, I'm not an ageist or anything. I think <laughs> you're you're as you're as old as you feel, and sometimes older people can have very modern minds and and so on. But I, I think even they would agree that that variety is good. And if you only have, or mainly have seventy-somethings and eighty-somethings running your politics, then that just becomes a representation issue. You you have people who are not being represented at the table who are an important part of society. And that could possibly explain some of the disenchantment that people uh, feel all over the West uh, with their elected leaders. So yes, like let's get more young people at the table. As far as what Boric means for Chile, I think things are very much up in the air. And I, I, I suppose I've probably already made this clear, but I, I, you know, I, I get lots of calls from 
a variety of people from people in civil society, people in finance, uh, investors asking, gosh, which way is this going to go? And my response is that both the hopes and fears around Gabriel Boric seem well-founded to me. Uh, it is reasonable to think that he will succeed and strike this balance that we were describing earlier. And I personally hope that he does because I, you know, I find him to be very impressive and I want the best for Chile. But we also live in an era where polarization is very intense and these fissures in Chilean society are real, uh, as well as and I think the concerns about ruining what made Chile special for such a long time. Uh, I think those concerns are valid, too. So for, for a 35-year-old, he has a lot riding on his shoulders. <laughs> and I, yes. I, you know, I, I wish him well, and I, I hope he has success and is the first of you know, many people uh, on left, center, and right who, who come in with, with new ideas to, to pull Latin America out of this funk that it's been in economically for the last 10 years or so and ensure that the region's democracies continue to get stronger. Well, Brian, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast again. We really appreciate it. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. We would like to say thank you to the International Studies Program at Johns Hopkins University and the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Hit follow on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes, and leave a rating. We'll see you next time.